Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Today it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. On Saturday, President Donald Trump followed through on his pledge to name a Supreme Court justice to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Judge Amy Coney Barrett said this about filling the shoes of the justice known as Notorious RBG. Should I be confirmed... I will be mindful of who came before me. The flag of the United States is still flying at half-staff in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was a woman of enormous talent and consequence, and her life of public service serves as an example to us all. Trump picked Barrett to serve as judge to the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in 2017. At the time, she was a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. If approved by the Senate, Judge Barrett would join the high court with fellow Notre Dame alumnus, Justice Neil Gorsuch. In a few minutes, we'll get an insider's view from someone who spent years at Notre Dame and has intimate knowledge of the school's legacy and legal philosophy. But first, WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith joins us with more on Amy Coney Barrett. Patrick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Justin? Good. So so you did this uh, feature last week, and and we just knew that this was going to be the pick. Tell us more about what you found out about Amy Coney Barrett. Well, you know, as you mentioned, she's a Notre Dame Law School alumna and a Notre Dame law professor. Uh, She's a prolific legal scholar who, described by the people, basically everybody I talked to described her as as just a brilliant legal thinker. Um, And as you said, she's an appeals court judge on the Seventh Circuit, which is based here in Chicago. Um, You know, the the people I talked to who know her from Notre Dame said she's she's really fair-minded, She's um, like a really great professor and just a really great person to sort of discuss the law with and, and help, you know, sort of help make sense of your own arguments. Um, and she's she's 48, which would make her the youngest justice on the Supreme Court if she's confirmed. She's also a Catholic, which, depending on who you ask, is either really relevant or, or you know, not relevant at all. Is she a controversial pick? Well, she's controversial in that I think anyone who Trump nominated this close to the election would be controversial. And she's maybe controversial, you know, you just played her talking about following in the in the shoes of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think it's a little bit controversial because she's definitely a conservative and, and Ginsburg was, was, was a liberal. Um, but I don't think she stands out as particularly controversial compared to anyone else Trump might have picked for, for this opening. What do we know about her when it comes to her judicial philosophy? She is, uh, Barrett is an originalist or textualist. Uh, She clerked for former Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Scalia is probably the most famous originalist maybe in the Supreme Court's history. Originalism or textualism means you are basing your judicial rulings on your interpretation of the text of the Constitution or the law at hand and your understanding of what the original intent was of the people who wrote the law. Um, Actually, I talked to one of her former students who said that in class, she once complained about her husband. She would send him to the grocery store with a shopping list, and he would come back with all these additional things that weren't on the list, and she complained that he went off list. You know, they would joke in class that she was a textualist even when it came to her, her <laughs> grocery list. Uh, and I think that's a good way to think of textualism. 
Like, it doesn't matter what's on sale at the grocery store. It doesn't matter what you're hungry for or how the peaches are looking. All that matters is what's actually written on the paper, what's actually on the list. Yeah. Well, she's on the bench here in Chicago, and it's only been a couple of years since she was appointed by President Trump. So what, what is her history in that short time as a judge? Yeah, you're right. You know, she's only been there for about three years, and, and she was not a judge before that. Um, however, she has written more than 100 opinions and dissents in that three years, which is very prolific. It's something that the people at Notre Dame are proud of, of how, how, how much she's writing, even though she's, you know, pretty new to that, that position. Uh, you know, a lot of her opinions that she's writing are on mundane or very specific legal issues. But she has come down very clearly on the conservative side of some hot button issues while she's been in the appeals court. Like, she, she's shown herself to be in favor of tighter abortion restrictions opposed to, to strict gun control. Hmm. And we heard on 1A today, too, they were talking about the ACA. And, and, and I think you're going to hear that a lot in the next, uh, uh, obviously, as we get uh, through the confirmation hearings in the Senate. But, but how she may... Uh, how how she has voted in the or or been a judge and and done decisions in the past and what it might look like at the Supreme Court when you balance that out and you see what she's done in Chicago you you get a better understanding of of what kind of judge she is. You do. I mean, the interesting thing I would say is I, I think if you look at her, what she's written as a judge and and what she's written in her um, legal scholarship, I think you see her as very clearly a conservative. It was interesting, you know, talking to a lot of her colleagues and former students at Notre Dame though. You know, they all insisted, no, no, she does not have a political ideology. She, she's not swayed by whatever her personal beliefs are, that she is, because of this originalism or textualism, that she's very fair-minded, that she only looks at the law in front of her and sort of her interpretation of the Constitution. She's not going to be political one way or another. I will say that's often the defense, or not defense, but that's what people who believe in originalism say, is that, oh, this is divorced from politics. It's all about interpretation. However, you know, we've mentioned Scalia. He was a very, very... um consistent conservative, and I, I think people rightfully believe that, that Barrett will also be a very consistent conservative if she's confirmed. Yeah. WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. All right, now let's talk with someone who knew uh, Amy Coney Barrett well. Doug Castle, professor emeritus of law and former director of the Center for Civil and Human Rights at Notre Dame Law School. Doug, welcome to Reset. Good morning. Thank you. Good to talk with you. All right. So let, you were colleagues with uh, Judge Barrett at Notre Dame Law School. How, how do you remember her? Well, I remember her. I was a colleague of hers for 13 years from 2005 and, until 2018. Actually, she went on the bench a year before I retired in 2018. And during that time, of course, I, I had many opportunities to get to know her in the course of faculty meetings, committee meetings, uh, workshops, and so on. Um, I recall her uh, largely in the same vein as Patrick Smith just described, with one important exception that I will come to in, in a few minutes. That is to say, uh, everything that I observed of Judge Barrett during my time at Notre Dame, and she was there that entire time except for the last year, uh, was that she is indeed a brilliant legal scholar. She is a beloved teacher. She's one of the most popular teachers at Notre Dame. And Notre Dame places a high priority on recruiting people who are and, and maintaining people who are good teachers. So the fact that she won the best teaching award for three years out of the time I was there uh, is high praise for her teaching. Uh, from my service on the committee with her, uh, I found her to be uh, fair-minded about committee matters 
and a, a very congenial colleague, which is a mm -hmm. desirable trait in a faculty member. So those are the main memories I have of Amy Barrett, other than, of course, that she was a former clerk from Justice Scalia, for Justice Scalia, and uh, has, has long uh, echoed his judicial philosophy and I think wants to try to emulate him to a large extent mm -hmm. on the bench of the Supreme Court if she is, in fact, confirmed. Doug, it's interesting because you heard Patrick talk about how prolific she was in her writings, her opinions, even her dissents, uh, just in the short time she was a, uh, a judge here in Chicago. So what, what, are you familiar with Judge Barrett's writings and opinions? And, and go into those. What, what should we take away from some of the things that, that she uh, made decisions on? Well, I'm not familiar with the—I I think Patrick Smith said she's written 100 opinions on the bench <laughs> yeah. in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, I have not followed her career on the Seventh Circuit, so I can't speak to those. But I am familiar with her academic writings, which were prolific during the period she was a professor and I was a professor at Notre Dame. And she is, of course, uh, very much an admirer of the justice for whom she clerked, Justice Scalia, uh, who described himself, uh, and she uh, concurs uh, with some caveats, as an originalist uh, or a faint-hearted originalist. In other words, uh, Justice Scalia used to say, you have to take the original text except when it doesn't make any sense to mo anymore, uh, when it would be absurd to do that, and then you have to make an exception. But what's most important in her scholarly writings, and I think would be most important if she's elevated to the Supreme Court, is her position on precedent. As most of your listeners are aware, I'm sure there's a general practice and rule in American courts and federal courts that judges are supposed to follow the precedence of decisions that have been made before them unless they find a factual distinction in a new case or unless they find a really strong reason to say that times have changed or there was an error in the original decision. But Generally speaking, stare, it's called stare decisis, the Latin rule for following precedents, let the, let the decisions stand. And, and that is a, a bedrock of American law, American constitutional law, American law of uh, interpreting statutes passed by Congress and the state legislatures. Judge Barrett has a very unusual position on following hmm. precedent. Uh, in 2003, she published an article in the University of Colorado Law Review where she said that uh, essentially judges, and she was speaking especially of federal judges and mostly of judges on the courts of appeals, such as the one she is now on in Chicago, she says judges are following stare decisis, are following precedent too strictly to the point where it raises serious questions of due process of law in terms of the ability of a person in a case to be heard on his argument if the argument was already rejected in a previous case. Mm. And she said in extreme cases of following precedent, that can actually be a, viol a constitutional violation of the due process of law clause of the Constitution. Now, that's frankly a, a stunning uh, legal argument. Um, no one that I know of before Judge Barrett wrote it in 2003 
uh, had ever uh, taken that position that I know of. Um, and if you if you are an originalist, as she claims to be in following uh, Justice Scalia, and you go back to the beginnings, uh, you look at who drafted the due process clause, and it was none other than James Madison. Mm. And James Madison was co-author of the Federalist Papers, right. the commentaries on the Constitution that were published in order to try to get the Constitution adopted by the original 13 states. And one of his co-authors, Alexander Hamilton, wrote in Federalist Paper number 78 uh, concerning precedent. And what Hamilton said was that precedent is, quote, indispensable for judges to follow. Well, Doug, that because, I mean, automatically when you when you say it like that and, and, and we hear that, that you think of all the cases that have been decided by precedent or, or are standing right now and right away comes to mind Roe v. Wade. Uh, the idea that judges have passed on that because there has been precedent already set. If, if this judge says, no, I'm going to look at it again because I don't necessarily see precedent the same way as the, re the rest of the judges, that could have significant impact on, on American law. It certainly could. Um, I would be quite surprised, given Judge Barrett's uh, strong views on abortion and given her very weak views on precedent, if she did not become the additional vote needed on the court, either to overrule Roe versus Wade or to leave it effectively devoid of any continuing mm -hmm. practical effect. Their judges have all kinds of techniques to render a precedent meaningless without expressly overruling it. So whether she does it through the front door of overruling it or the back door of rendering it irrelevant, I think Roe versus Wade will be history uh, within a few short years after she comes to the bench. Wow. But the point is is broader than just that. Uh, it's not just Roe versus Wade. Uh, it, it comes down to what about all of the interpretations of the Constitution that the, federal, that the Supreme Court of the United States has rendered, especially since, let's say, the beginning of the Warren Court in the 1950s. Um, how many of those were originalist decisions and how many of them were more recent interpretations? And the short answer to that question is that most of the leading Supreme Court judgments interpreting the Constitution uh, in my lifetime, uh, which is to say certainly since the 1950s, uh, have been have not been originalists. They weren't in the language of the Constitution. There's nothing about abortion in the one way or the other in the original language of the Constitution. There's no clear evidence of exactly what the First Amendment meant right. in the original language of the Constitution. There's certainly nothing about wiretapping in the original language of the Constitution. There's nothing about the due process rights of locked up terrorists in Guantanamo uh, and very little about the rights of people who want to come into the United States as immigrants. There's nothing in the original Constitution about the DACA. The, the, yeah, there's the a lot. children of immigrants. This is this is about why she went to Notre Dame, which, of course, as we said in the lead, Justice Gorsuch is also from Notre Dame. But I want to play a little bit about Judge Barrett from her own voice. 
I liked the way that law would enable me to do the reading and writing that I loved, but also be kind of involved in real-world things, in real-world policy and shaping of society in a more direct way. And when I decided to go to law school, I really wanted to choose a place where I felt like I was not going to be just educated as a lawyer, but I wanted to be in a place where I felt like I would be developed and inspired as a whole person. What is it about Notre Dame and their philosophy and training lawyers and their law school that that is uh, making uh, Supreme Court justices? Well, in part, it is simply um, the fact that Notre Dame Law School, like the University of Notre Dame generally, has really tried over the last 60 years to upgrade itself from something of a regional uh, football school uh, to a first-class national university. And it's highly ranked in many of its departments, including the law school now. And uh, now that I'm gone from the faculty, I'm emeritus, I can say that I think Notre Dame has a first-rate faculty. And one may agree or disagree with Judge Barrett or Justice Gorsuch on various issues, but there's no question that they are both brilliant lawyers, as frankly are uh, most uh, of the faculty members that I can I, I knew and, and recall from my days at Notre Dame. Yeah. So part of it is simply intellectual excellence, but it's it's much more than that. Yeah, there was a, uh, Doug, I don't want to cut you off because I know we've got, okay. we got a couple Not minutes here. I want, I want to get to this sure. question, but about uh, Catholicism. Uh, right. You know, there's been a lot made of um, Judge Barrett's faith in, in the way that uh, she's the, 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 the word devout Catholic, that phrase that comes in. And there was a lot over the weekend about what that, how that, how to interpret that, what that means, uh, her uh, involvement in her religion. What, when, when we talk about what a devout Catholic means and how she uses her religion and how it, uh, how it informs her from the bench, what should we take away from that what, when we're reading these stories about how religious she is? Well, as you may know, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is a very big tent, and one can be a devout Catholic and still be a person considered very much on the left uh, or very much on the right. Um, Amy Barrett uh, is is clearly a person who is very much on the right. That doesn't tell you necessarily how she will vote in each and every case, but it does does tell you that people from that wing, so to speak, of the Catholic Church place an extremely high value on applying the right to life, which all of us, of course, support, but applying the right to life to unborn children. And for that wing of the Catholic Church, uh, abortion is murder. Now, I don't know if that is Amy Barrett's personal view. I never discussed that with her. But that is the general approach of people from the right wing of the Catholic Church, the conservative theological wing of the Catholic right. Church. And when you combine that with her legal views, that uh, precedent doesn't count very much, so that Roe versus Wade doesn't count very much. And what matters is the original Constitution, which said nothing about abortion explicitly. Uh, that suggests to me that uh, if she is elevated to the bench, uh, that Roe versus Wade will not have much longer life as a uh, an element of our Constitution. But the issue is not just Roe versus Wade. Uh, the issue is, do we want to have a court where what the Constitution means depends not only on who won the last election, but on who the Senate Republicans allowed to be confirmed and who they didn't allow to be confirmed. 
And that's today's Reset. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, and you can also check out our complete archives at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.